Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Al-Amin, and you can keep up with us on social media by following and liking our pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. Use that same username, that same username to find us wherever you get your podcasts. So subscribe, rate, review, and most importantly, share. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Spotify, and any other platform you can name. You will find us at Radio Islam USA. Before we begin, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Recycle Processes. We thank you for your continued support. All right, Radio Islam family, I am happy to have joining me in studio uh, just a really good brother um, who's doing some, who's been doing some great work for a long time uh, with a few different organizations. I probably, hopefully I'm going to learn something I don't know uh, in our conversations today. But Aron Siebert Yera, he is a staff attorney with the ACLU of Illinois. And he's also a former, what was your position with you, man? You like the... You like staff attorney, staff legislative attorney. staff attorney, jack of all trades. Okay, all right. That, that works, that works, that works. Anyway, assalamu alaikum. Alaykum <laughs> uh, Thanks for taking the time to come in. Of course. Um, so you have been doing... First off, i got to say this. Um, because our community, uh, I mean, on multiple levels, right? If we start out with just the American populace in general. We have a diverse, uh, uh, we are becoming more and more diverse, mm-hmm. right, uh, as, as time goes on. And then you think about the Muslim community, right, our ummah, uh, worldwide, but particularly right here in the U.S. Uh, I am frequent uh, to say uh, or to repeat that folks say the diversity of Muslims here is only matched or exceeded by the diversity you will find at the Hajj, right? In the U.S., this is yeah. the biggest gathering of diverse Muslims you'll find. Uh, you and I, you, Mexican-American Muslim, me, uh, African-American Muslim, uh, a part of this wonderful diversity that we have. How has Islam uh, impacted your identity? Wow. You know, I was just realizing, too, and thinking the other day that whatever, September 17th, so I'm coming up on October 6th, which will be 15 years as a Muslim. Mm. Um, just subhanAllah. I'm coming up, you know, halfway to two decades, or, you know, one and a half yeah. towards two decades, which is, subhanAllah, I can't believe that. Um, I think it's, I think with most people, it's, it's it evolves. Yeah. Um, for a lot of us who come into Islam, when we come into Islam, um, uh, I mean, I know you speaking for myself, so when I say a lot of in general, I, I mean, want to add something to that. You might okay. be surprised by it, but go ahead. Okay, I, might, I know a little about, you, about your story too, but yeah. <laughs> um, that when coming into Islam, sometimes you come in just gung ho, ready to run through some walls, and uh, look, you finally find something you've been looking for. Uh, your whole life. So my point, I, I was about 28. Yeah. Um, had been looking for something. Had, my dad had called me agnostic for my whole life. Mm. My mother's Catholic. My dad's Jewish. So you know, we had a Christmas tree with the Star of David on top of it and a menorah next to it. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We we celebrate everything, and we we're very cultural. Yeah. You know, we would we would uh, have some uh, some foods that I consider to be culturally Jewish. Mm-hmm. But my dad would also cook pork chops and get the meat eaters pizza from Pizza Hut, whatever, you know, yeah. whenever we would order from Pizza Hut. Mm-hmm. So it was a very cultural upbringing. But it was I was always looking for something. In my whole life, I was always looking for something. So when I finally found that, I think one of the things is you come in with really, I say, I tell people all the time, you come in with blinders on. Mm-hmm. You see Islam as this perfect religion, which to us who are followers and a lot of us who have had, a, I could say, good experiences – We'll view it as such. Right. One of the things you learn, some of us learn quicker than others. Some take some, some time being in, being in certain communities that Islam may be perfect. Mm. But Muslims are far from perfect. Right. Right. And when you learn more about Islam, you do learn that. You do see that that is something that is definitely taught to us. Because, but unfortunately, you know, I've had this conversation a lot just over the last week. Mm. Um, Talking today with someone at lunch about the, the, the TV series Rami. Talking with a friend of mine last week who, mm. who works in the Muslim community, who's pretty well known in the Muslim community. We were talking with us. And it's funny because we had this conversation. We went for lunch last week. 
And the conversation was funny because at the end of it, I said, you know, this is the the most open discussion we've had in the years we've known each other. And I feel it was like we were playing this game where we were tap dancing around each other. Right. Not sure what we could talk about because we didn't want to judge each other. We weren't sure if we were going to be judged by maybe divulging certain information about our lives or who knows what it could be where we just kind of had these very short conversations. And last week we had a very deep one, which was... So was uh, so this was centered around um, the, the series Rami that's on, on Hulu. That was today's discussion okay. with a non-Muslim friend. Okay. Last week was with a Muslim friend where we were talking more in general just about even feeling comfortable around each other. And I say this because it's at comfort levels as far as I think when you first kind of come into Islam, mm-hmm. you really want to be the best Muslim you can be. Mm-hmm. And you view any kind of misstep as, oh my God, this is the end. I can't believe I did this. I'm, I'm done for. I came in and I had this clean slate and everyone kept telling me, oh, you're like a brand new baby. And everyone gives you all... Everyone always tells you all these things, and they're all, you know, of course, that goes along with the everyone wanting to know your story without even knowing your name. Hmm. You know, first thing, tell me, brother, what's your story? How'd you come to Islam? Mm-hmm. And I've gotten to the point where people ask that question, I'm just like, how do you become Muslim? I just respond, I took the shahada. <laughs> and people, no, 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 what's your story? And I look at them like, well, do you even know my name? Right. That's a very personal story. It is. How about you get to know who I am? Then you can ask that. Don't meet me at some iftar. Sit down next to me. And then just ask me that question. And you find out I'm a convert. Because, you know, most of the, all the Sahaba, all the Sahaba were, 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 were converts. Every last I don't one. think 15 years later, people are like, Omar, uh, tell me, what's your story? How did you become Muslim? Like, Man, you were there at the same time as me. What do you mean? How did I become Muslim? It's, 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 it's kind of, uh, after all this time, too, because I know Muslims who've been for 25, 30 years, and I've asked them, do people still call you Kamar? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. They still get called a Kamar. That's like, when people have called Hadija a, a, a convert 30 years later. Well, different different mindsets. What I was going to say is that, well, two things. First off, technically, I, I was raised Muslim, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm second generation, right? Um, but as far as living consciously as a Muslim, then I honestly could look back and say that really, it's been about 19 years, right? And that's exactly as long as I've been married. So my marriage and my um, my, my dedication and my seriousness, my conscious, uh, conscientiousness, that all, it was all tied in together. So yeah, I could say, yeah, I was raised uh, Muslim, but, and I think that may be true for for many people, there's a certain yeah. point in life where you become more serious and more observant, uh, where your faith has more meaning. Uh, it, it really does become sacred to you. Uh, and for a lot of people, th- that's not, you know, you don't go back and look to ten years old and be like, you know, I've been on the I've been on the path since I was ten. I was, yeah. you know, <laughs> so um, yeah. Technically, I'm 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 not a not a convert, but just in terms of awareness. There's a part of me that I, I do kind of count that time of uh, going back. Okay, yeah, 2000. That was the that was the big change for me. But often that can be great because that, that to me is that's a conscious decision you made. You made probably based off of you know none of my business, mm-hmm. off of some experiences you probably had beforehand where you're probably like, you know what, this isn't for me. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's great. I have a 10-year-old. And when I tell him and I teach him stories, I tell him all the time, it's very likely you might make a mistake. Yeah. I said, Allah is all forgiven. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. And I remind him all the time, just because you make a mistake in life does not mean you cannot be forgiven, does not mean that Allah does not love you, does not mean anything like that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you the lessons. I'm going to teach you. And just pray that you you do the best you can do, but I'm not going to... You know, get upset if you make some sort of mistake because that's one of the things that you learn later. Mm-hmm. And those aren't the, the lessons you always get early on, where you start to learn. You know, Allah loves those who who do m- make a uh, you know a mistake, but seek forgiveness right away and feel it in their heart that man, I just screwed up. Yeah, there's a difference. <laughs> there's a difference between making a mistake and and being repentant about it. 
right, and being earnestly, um, you know, contrite and, and, and sorry about it, and making a mistake, and then beating up on yourself, you know, because I, I think one is there's there's health there's there's a healthy way to respond to our mistakes, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's the unhealthy way, right? The the healthy way is recognizing that. Allah is is merciful and all forgiving, and kind of going back to that uh, narration, it says that um, if 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 humanity, if human beings didn't make, if they did not sin, that Allah would replace them with a creation uh, that did, right? Because a part of being human is you know we're going to make mistakes, and yeah. but what happens after the mistakes? So isn't that compassion for the self? Do you feel like that's something that, uh, from your perspective, that maybe people who are just coming into the uh, into the dean that they may not have that they they may feel that uh, they're supposed to be perfect oh of course and you be you, you hold to that standard i can't tell me how many people i've known who may have been in the community at some point and then someone will say oh they're no longer muslim yeah I, they, they, and you're like well, sad, well, how in the world do you know that because she took hijab off because you don't see him at the juma prayer well, reality is they've said about 10% of Muslims go to the masjid. Yeah. That leaves a whole 90%. So when we talk about a TV show like Rami and the Muslims are getting up in arms about that's not Muslim. No, that is the majority of, of Muslims, including the people who are going to Juma too. Mm. Surprise, surprise. There's a lot of people who go to Juma who are there because one reason, because it's like, man, I got to make sure I'm there. So I'm seeking forgiveness because I screwed up this week. Yeah. But we try to put forth this image of perfection. Mm-hmm. Well, we can't because we are not perfect. We cannot put put this image up that that and, and expect ourselves to to be perfect. And yeah, it, it definitely. You, I don't think most people have that when they're early on being Muslim because mm-hmm. you've got to go through a lot. You know, I think that it's unfortunate. You you have to get to a point. Hopefully, you are in a community, um, and I don't necessarily mean a community that's just within the masjid walls, but you have a community of people around you that can support you uh, for you to be able to get to the point where you understand it's not about perfection, but it's about purpose, right? Islam is a religion of purpose, and uh, nobody's going to be perfect, right? Yeah. But finding the purpose is what really, for me, that's the that's the joyful part. Um, I mean, in absent, that feels just on, am I not, am I not going to be able to uh, make a mistake or... You know, I think I would have flamed out a long time ago. I mean, just just being quite honest. But about Rami, do you think that show is um, that is helping non-Muslims? Uh, has that I should say this? Has that show been a part of the conversation that you've had with maybe non-Muslim colleagues or friends? Uh, has it maybe opened the doors for them to have a dialogue they would not have? I uh, think so. I, I think it's ridiculous when people in the Muslim community think it's it's bad in the sense that it's going to give a different perception of us. It's like, no, it's going to give a lot of other people the reality that, look, they're just like us because I'm Catholic, I'm Jewish, I'm Buddhist, I'm whatever I am, and I'm not perfect. Right. And look, neither are neither are Muslims. Mm-hmm. And people think we got to have this perception that we're perfect. No. There, there, there is a lot of beauty in all of our flaws. Mm-hmm. Some of them can be worse than others, and, and, and the, 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 the thing is, for me, when we talk about community, almost 15 years into being Muslim, I don't really have one that I, that I go to much besides maybe going, you know, I've told people many times, what the one of the only communities, if not the only community I ever feel comfortable in is the African-American Muslim community. Mm-hmm. There's not really any other one where I feel comfortable where people aren't going to be judging me, aren't going to be, if I, you know, as I've been looking to get married for years, judge me because what my what's my ethnic background mm-hmm. or you know then investigate my family and be like oh they found out about my family and well we're not gonna hold this against you or be told by people which happened in my past well you should be you should be honored that we allowed you to marry into our family mm-hmm. or into this community which i've been told in the past and in, in pre in my you know yeah. it's too much i've been <laughs> i've been told that before yeah when you look at someone it's like well hold up I don't think your family is perfect, and this could be in many different families, and I'm not going to hold it against anybody mm-hmm. as far as what someone might bring into a relationship because it, it's, um, it is that sense where it still exists in some parts of the community that there has to be perfection. Let me ask this. I know the, the difficulties or the struggles associated with being um, African-American, uh, and then add on a, a further 
I guess you could say marginalizer, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Further identity, right? That puts you as, as a double minority. So it's African-American Muslim. That's a minority of a minority. Yeah. So for you, you spoke about two things, right? People trying to figure out uh, what your ethnicity is, right? Uh, and I read this piece that you wrote um, last year, and it was about, uh, it was a, a book about our journeys. Oh. To Islam. <laughs> yeah. And in there you describe, you say, you know, as, as a light-skinned Mexican, um, and you also make sure that, you know, you have, uh, you have a, so you have Mexican, Mexican ancestry and Jewish ancestry, right? So when people, when we get into the whole uh, uh, phenotypical representations or people, you know, I'm trying to figure out what you are, you know, mm -hmm. all of that. Talk about, if you, if you will, so, what are some of the... <laughs> Uh, what are some of the realities that maybe folks are not aware of when it comes to your identity as a as a as a Mexican? Is that, that's you. That's me. <laughs> okay. Now I'm not. Yeah. Now see, that's that's man. I wish y'all could see this. That's you. That's me. So when when I talk to people about my experiences in life, and I may talk about having been one time when I lived out in the Bay Area and I was out near the Pinole area, which is known as been a, has been a fairly racist area for, well, ever since my stepdad was growing up in Richmond. Yeah. I was followed by a carload of, of white teenagers throwing bottles at my car and yelling ethnic slurs at me. People look at me now like, well, you don't look Mexican. I'm like, well, I live in Chicago now. Yeah. When I lived in California. You're like two shades, two shades darker than Yeah. I tan. I tan well. When I get in the sun, I look a lot different. And I try to explain that to people that I've had. I'm like a chameleon. Mm -hmm. I've been on the side where I've had guns pulled on me by police yeah. because I was with a group of friends on Cinco de Mayo. And they pulled guns on us thinking that we were up to no good. And we had actually just had a car accident. And we're exchanging wow. insurance information. But cops jumped out of the car. So I had that experience. And people look at me now like, well, hot. And I got to show a picture. I'm like, this is how I looked in my 20s. Right. This is how I looked when I lived in California. And and maybe, you know, hung out with some some friends who weren't in the best, uh, <laughs> making the best life decisions. But I was still in school, and it was kind of like living vicariously through your friends. Yeah. But I looked a lot different. And what that means is I've had these experiences where I've been on both sides, where people have assumed I'm... I'm Mexican. Right. And then when I'm not, not getting enough sun, my pigment has then gone back a few shades and a few shades lighter mm -hmm. and people assume I'm white in the between then where people thought I was Arab and I was fine after 9-11 and for well over a decade every single time I flew it was the random you know sir please step to the side and a random search so okay I'm, so during those times were you were you uh, wearing a heavy beard at that point uh, as you saw Kofi no you were looking just like that like that or a little or a beard like now and you were and you were getting pulled over in the TSA line? Well, but, but that's a little darker. Okay. And it always and that always had okay. facial hair in some yeah. in yeah, some yeah. sense. Okay. You know, some some are either either the John B look as you saw in that picture. Yeah. Or, or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly that's exactly the look. I won't yeah. lie and say I did not use some pictures and be like, hmm, let me see if I can get it like that. How's it done? And I would just line it up. Hey, the go-to was sharp though. <laughs> yeah, that, all by myself. Really? Lined it up all, all by right, myself. I had people stop me in the street like, where'd you get lined up? Like myself. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's a lot of practice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, from that alone, I've I've had these different ep not episodes, but I'd say maybe eras or maybe maybe episodes like a show where mm -hmm. it's like these different times where I've I've fit into different categories, right. and people want to stick you in a category where, well, you don't look this, you don't look that, and I have that in the in the Muslim community all the time. Well, you don't look Mexican. Right. Well, you know, how often do people even look around themselves if they go to Mexico? Mm -hmm. Because my family, if you can say, I don't look Mexican, go look at my family. Yeah. 70% of them do not look Mexican, but mm. they're Mexican yeah. because we are extremely mixed. Yeah. yeah. All different backgrounds. So that just means within your family, you can have someone like you know, blonde haired, blue eyed cousins to some of my uncles who look straight indigenous to I mean, all over the place. Well, you know, it's funny. The only people that you really find that you can tell exactly I mean if you go back you know go to their their families generally uh, white families Caucasian families everybody kind of looks like you know you don't see one person that looks like um, you know the African generally right 
but throughout every other group of people, I think you find that diversity you're talking about. I'm in my own family, uh, as a matter of fact, I've got three daughters. One is my complexion. The other two, uh, maybe a shade darker than you. Okay, um, sisters, same way. A few of us are darker. Uh, a few of us are, are lighter. Mothers light, fathers dark. When I went to Puerto Rico, I felt a real sense of kind of, uh, of, of comfort, kind of like mm -hmm. being home, because you saw these families that look the very same way. And when you think about that, it becomes really hard to say, you don't look, you don't look black, you don't look Mexican, you don't look Puerto Rican, you don't look Asian, because you see these, uh, you know, you see these, these this, just this wide array of, uh, you know, of just people. So that's... Yeah. When I went to Cuba, everybody spoke to me in Spanish. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's what happened to me when no, I went to uh, Puerto Rico. No one yeah. said, you don't look Cuban. People thought I was Cuban. When, yeah. I'm, when I'm in a Puerto Rican neighborhood or, you know, when I was in New York or if I go over Humboldt Park, I go to a Puerto Rican restaurant right away, que quiere papi? Yeah. No questions <laughs> asked. Right away, yeah. people are like, no, you look... I, and, and when I did my DNA test, mm -hmm. it said... Background most like closest to was Puerto Rican, really. Yeah. So, okay. but the thing is, this the interesting thing about this has been that within the Muslim community, mm -hmm. because I can just kind of fit in, and if I'm in now in Arab communities, most people think I'm Arab. I go to you know, Middle Eastern restaurants in my neighborhood, people are speaking to me in Arabic. I understand enough, I can respond in English, yeah. but I understand enough that I've been in settings with Muslims when they'll say something about Mexicans. Really. And I just look at like, whoa, hold on a second. Right. And one person said it, and I looked at him, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You remember my background? Oh, yeah, 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 but you're not like the other. You're not like them. Oh, no, not that. <laughs> not that. So it's created some interesting life experiences where even, even if I'm on other you know, people who are Spanish-speaking, if I'm on other Latinos, which I hate. You know, I don't always like using that term either because... Yeah, like I hear, I, I hear more now. The uh, I hear uh, Latinx has come into. Yeah, but even that lexicon. is just like, in this country, it makes sense to try to use a term like that. Yeah. But we got twenty-seven Spanish-speaking countries. You go to these countries, no one's like, soy Latino. No. Right. Soy right. Mexicano. Soy Salvadoreño. Soy yeah. Puertorriqueño. You're from wherever you are. That's right. your background. No one's using those terms. It's a way here to try to also say, the Muslim community. Mm -hmm. Nobody can speak for the Muslim community. No one person can speak for that whole community because they're not going to be connected to everyone. They're not going to have the same experiences. There's just no way. Right. And Latino, Latina, Latinx, whatever it might be, that's just another way, too, to try to make this homogenous community, which there isn't. It mm -hmm. does not exist. So we can't pigeonhole people and stick them into these little, okay, this is your, you're going to represent, and I've been part of this for well over a decade, Mm -hmm. We're in the Muslim community. Oh, we need some representation from the Latino and Muslim community. We'd like you to be on board with us. And you show up these meetings. <laughs> you just checking a box. Yeah. You you got someone to rep because I don't represent everyone in the community, and I'm not going right. to say I do. Right. So, well, I mean, when language becomes the identifier, and that's that's probably the the cheapest way to to do it to assume that if you have a shared language that there's a shared worldview, shared history, shared culture. And like you mentioned, in these different places, there's different histories, mm -hmm. right? Um, so when we think about Spanish-speaking Muslims, and maybe that's, maybe is that a better uh, way to, if you're trying to look at a, a, an umbrella, or, or is the umbrella unnecessary? I mean, at the end of the day, that's the thing that gets frustrating, right? Because Muslims will love to quote the last, you know, of the prophets of the and talk yeah. about well look at the last sermon here it talks about the black and the white and nuns more you know has a higher regard a higher place and for Allah it's like yeah we, people will quote that right ad nauseum just on and on it's like okay well in reality are we living that are you gonna no we're not because I've had experiences again in trying to get married it's like well you can't meet with the father because you're not Arab Right. So he's not going to meet with you. Mm -hmm. He, you know, find out later. Yeah, he did his background and found out you can't can't find anything wrong with you, anything bad about you, but you're not Arab. Mm -hmm. And then we try to, in these same messages, try to put forth these chutbah where we talk about things like that. It's like, well, when we've got the internal racism, and I tell this to a lot of people too. When I had a student a year, 
year, year, year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. It was when I was working at EMN. And she was writing a paper about Islamophobia. And my point to her was, I understand the perspective and what you're writing about, but until the Muslim community is understanding of the internal racism and the racism they have towards other groups as well, no one's going to care that Islamophobia is happening in the sense that you can't have racism towards other groups and then yourself then start crying wolf. Well, look what's happening. Look at the Islamophobia. Well, yeah, you're selling liquor on the south side of Chicago and you're calling people. Yeah, I you know, you, know that. you call them slave and you're yeah. thinking that's okay because, well, <clears throat> they're not Muslim. It's okay to sell to them. Okay, if you've got that mentality, and then you're going to turn around and cry wolf and say, well, look how these people are treating us. Well, good. you got to taste your own medicine. <laughs> now you know what it's like. You can't sit here and start talking about why we've been treated like this when you're treating people just as poorly, if not worse. Yeah. Do you think, um, kind of looking at the idea of when we, because we use the term the Muslim community, right? Mm-hmm. But when we, we're using it, I think often we have an idea of, of what we're talking about. We understand that there is a lot of diversity in it. Um, but when we use it, are we using it in the, in the same fashion to mean the, maybe the controlling um, interests or the, the dominant society within Muslims? Uh, I think Muslim community, when I think about it, sometimes I think of the controlling type of community that a lot of the youth and people in the masjid are trying to understand why youth aren't coming to the masjid. Mm-hmm. They just got to take a look in the mirror and understand why the youth, and even not youth, myself, I go to the masjid for Juma. That's it. Yeah. And if I don't have to go to the, the masjid, if I can go somewhere like Iman or somewhere else, I will go there in a heartbeat because I would much rather go there because I don't feel comfortable in most masjids, in the Chicago area at least. Um you know, it's it's funny because I've had things too, like, you know, again, while trying to get married and someone told me a few weeks ago, you need to come out to this event we're having. And I saw one of the speakers. I was like, oh, nope. Mm. Because it's someone in the Muslim community, well-known around this country, right. who does a lot of work on divorce, talks about divorce. And I remember when I was going through my divorce, I reached out to the brother and said, I need some support, I need some help. And the response was, sorry, brother, I don't have time. Mm. It was left at that. But then you're going to go out and talk about the issues in the community, talk about the divorce rates. But when people actually need help when they come to you, you're like, oh, sorry, I'm too busy. Mm. Well, then we're just preaching. But we're not finding ways to solve and find solutions. We're not. And that's one of the things I see in my work now. And that's one thing that a lot of people I work with enjoy is that I don't come in just preaching about all these problems. I come in solutions-oriented. Here are the problems. This is what we need to do. Right. Because if you're just complaining all the time, no one wants to keep hearing those complaints. But if you're saying, here's the complaints, but this is what we can do, and this is what we have to work towards, then you actually, when you're solutions-oriented, you can try to find a path to then getting and fixing a community or fixing if you're at a job or fixing whatever it might be you're trying to fix. Mm-hmm. You're not just complaining. In all fairness, I have to, I have to pose this, this thought. I want you to say what you think about this. As somebody who's, you know, I speak in different places and, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, and, and such. And I may be addressing themes in, in general, right? And the themes that I'm addressing that are reflective of uh, what I assume to be our shared reality. Or I see, you know, it's, it's problems that need to be uh, addressed. Now, I get my fair share of, um, you know, or people will you know, DM me or, you know, send me an email or whatever, uh, asking for this or that. Now, for everybody, I, you know, I, I don't have the, the bandwidth to, to respond to, you know, I don't have the bandwidth to respond to everyone, right? And I don't want to make it seem at all like I'm saying, like I got, you know, a thousand people, you know, getting at me a day. Um, but <laughs> sometimes just one thing uh, one one hour commitment can just derail everything, right? So um, I, I bring that up to say, is it possible or is it fair to say that sometimes we have people who their responsibility is really to kind of, they, they, they speak as educators, 
or as, as reminders, right? With the assumption or hope that there are communities in place where people can go and, 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 and kind of work things out um, on a local level, if you got, if yeah. that's the national figure, right? Because yeah. I think about the work that you do, you know, with uh, ACLU, your work is, is really based upon the, the sentiments of the people as well, right? You know, you got people who they don't have the expertise or the ability to advocate, you know, in the way that, uh, or navigate the legal system, you know, as, as, as you all do. Yeah. But it is in response to that. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I, I, can, I, I think that one of the issues that I see with that mm-hmm. is that, and, this, and I don't see this always happening, and I see some nonprofits that do this purposely, where they don't put a particular person as their figurehead because they don't want to have the, uh, I don't know how to even phrase, what word to use, but like in the Muslim community we the see The Messiah it. complex. Yeah, we put yeah. someone on a pedestal. Yeah. I think of what happened with Numan Ali Khan. I think of what happened with so many different people in the community. I don't know what exactly happened. I don't think anyone will actually know what happened in a lot of these instances. Yeah. And it's not at all what happened there. The issue is that when we elevate people to these levels and we look up at them like they can do no wrong and then when they do wrong everyone just is so quick to topple them act shocked well we shouldn't be investing all of our faith or whatever it might be in a person mm-hmm. but when it happens and, and that's that's what i'm saying is that Sometimes people look at that and think, yeah, this person can come in and fix all this because they're the ones talking about all this. The problem is we haven't gotten to, I feel like, in, in the community, when, again, we talk about Muslim community, but when I, right. when I think about that, I guess I think of people who are active in the community. People are trying to do something in, within the community. Right. Um, is that we haven't gotten enough to that level of how do we affect change? How are we going to do this work? We have people out there who are doing it. But we still don't have enough people who are out there doing it. And sometimes when you've done it within the community, you might need a break from the community too and, and get out of the community, which I'm not saying exactly, you know, well, I will say that's part of the reason that right. I, I am where I am now is because I don't think the community is up, is fully there yet either in being able to embrace certain careers and certain types of people and certain types of work and realize, hey, we got to put some money into this effort and right. do some of this work. Things that I don't even deal with, the mental health, mm. drug yeah. and alcohol counseling. Yeah. No, those problems don't exist in our community. Well, no, they do. And when you try to just push them underneath and brush them under the rug, they're going to be that much worse. Mm-hmm. I saw a brother put something on Facebook the other day talking about how, and it was interesting, he said how families will be up in arms if there is a gay child in a Muslim family, but this will be a same family that might just easily protect a child molester in the family. Wow. And I've seen it. Wow. I have seen it happen in Muslim families where that has happened. Oh, no. <clears throat> we will protect the family from him. Are you sure as hell we're doing it for the last 20 years? What do you think is going to change the next 20 years? Right. But if there happens to be somebody who might be from the LGBTQ you know, community in that family, oh, no, 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 no. This, this, oh, because culturally they might think it's abhorrent. They might think it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? We have people from all backgrounds in our community, and we're pushing people to the fringes and out of the community because we're telling people you can't be this and Muslim, all right? Which is ridiculous because, mm-hmm. and this is something that's definitely not popular with a lot of people. What's that? But the, the oh, fa- that idea, the fact that idea, the fact that at the time of the Prophet Sallallahu you had people from all backgrounds. We have people so quick to say, "Oh, it's the day of judgment is near," because look at this and look at these people, and all these people are out in the open. First of all, the question I like to ask people is, are you that ready for the day of judgment? Because I'm not, and I don't want to be here. I would rather be waiting in my grave, dead for decades and decades, if not centuries, all my children and grandchildren as well, so we don't have to deal with the jail and all that. I don't want to be around for that. Yeah. I don't want to be tested like that. You know, I feel like we, a lot of times, people use faith to oversimplify uh, life. Oh. And to become... <laughs> yeah. And to become like a lot of voters, right? We're in, we're in election season now, and we have people who are actually single-issue voters, mm-hmm. which I have no idea. I mean, unless your single issue is, uh, you know, it's uh, chattel slavery, right? If that was the issue, like, we, you know, if that was actually on the table, I could see you saying that, right? But 
life is so complex and we have so many different uh, concerns and so many things that are impacting people being able to live, you know, free lives and, and dignified lives uh, that it, 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 it is ridiculous to me to, to think that you can just become a single issue uh, voter. And I think we do our religion uh, not just as Muslims, but we do religion very much the same way, where we pull out these single issues mm -hmm. and that becomes the end-all, be-all. We are fine with poverty. You know, we've made peace with uh, substance abuse. We've made peace with uh, the dysfunction of uh, domestic violence and, and, uh, and, and child abuse and all these other things. Uh, but we lay our hats on the one relation uh, that really... It's supposed to be a private relation, right? What goes on in your house is, is in your house. Um, but, you know, the, the sexual component, there's a over, I don't want to say, like, maybe there's, like, that becomes the main uh, point of focus, uh, the end-all, be-all. And, and, then, and then we're fine with ignoring all these other uh, issues that are oh, yeah. impacting us on a far greater uh, level with far more frequency, um, and I'm not here to, you know, to, to 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 give anybody any types of judgment on on anything. I'm simply saying that there's a lot that goes into to having a society that that that, that has peace, uh, and and there's a lot that goes into uh, living in a pluralistic uh, society, uh, and. If, and, and a lot of that is, is recognizing that you can't determine what other people are supposed to be doing outside of the major stuff of not stealing and, and killing. And, you know, there's some really major and easy things to, to deal with. But outside of that, you don't have any control over what, no, what uh, anybody's supposed doing. to. No. I mean, suppose we have, how many stories do we have of, of during, during the time Prophet said this somewhere, people who had committed something, you know, some, some, some sin. Mm -hmm. And they go after the prophet. I think of the case of the woman who's, who's committed, you know, zina, yeah. and is going after the prophet and asking, what, what is the punishment? He continually walks away and turns away and tries to ignore giving the answer. And after what, I don't know, three, yeah. three four times, yeah. finally gives the answer, this is the punishment. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, that's what we need to be looking at. Because people, we, when, I, when I talk about the law and I talk about Islam, I'm able to try to tell people, like, look, when you talk about the law, you've got the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And people will literally interpret that Constitution. They'll look at the actual words of what it says and then stick to that. They won't look at the context. They won't look at the Second Amendment. They won't look at that time and say, well, you know, when I, when I taught law and I would teach my students about this, they think of the Second Amendment. Right. What kind of guns did they have back then? Oh, muskets. Muskets. Mm -hmm. Could you have someone go into a school and shoot it up? No. You'd get one shot off and be there for half a minute, at least a minute, trying to re refill for the next one. I think someone's taking you out by then. Mm -hmm. And you had a standing militia because we were fighting against an army from England. And it, it, people can't, then they don't look at that context of how and when it was written. Right. People will look at the Quran and be like, well, this is what it says right here. Do we not have the Sunnah? Do we not have the Hadith? Which, to me, are what we should be using to interpret. Right. What happened? What happened at the time of Prophet? Did did were people because of their beliefs? Did you have people hung up and were they gone after? They chased after because they believed in you. No, we got to Someone stole something. Okay, let's cut their hands off. Let me uh, say something to that. Um, because one of the things that I notice is that not only, not only is there very little contextual analysis of, uh, you know, of, of uh, Quranic um, uh, injunctions and, and commands of, or using the, the, the Sunnah, right, looking at Hadith. But there is very little uh, comparative analysis in, in terms of how societies have changed. Uh, and, and if you, you can look and say, okay, this is what happened in this particular context. And does it, does it fit exactly with today, right? That should be the question. What mm -hmm. what factors, what variables have been introduced that have changed uh, reality? Which, you know, how would this situation look today? But when you talked about cutting hands off, right? Yes, it's in the Quran, right? It's, it's in there. Can't get around it, it's there. But why is it 
and these are disturbing videos, right? But these are actually on, you go, you go to YouTube and you know, you see uh, like in Somalia, uh, in Iran and, well, no, they've actually cut back. No, no pun intended. Um, but Somalia, they are now, you know, using uh, 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 Sharia. And, but it is always, it always appears to be a poor person that is the recipient of this justice. Mm -hmm. Right. It's never, it's never some wealthy uh, individual, but it looks like somebody who is who is living hand to mouth. Well, I mean, it, it, we look at how everything is ha handled in this world right now. We yeah. look at the opioid crisis right now. Yeah. So we got pharma who's who's declared bankruptcy. So mm -hmm. they get to pay back some money in these lawsuits. Essentially, um, get a Purdue. Or, yeah, Purdue, Purdue Pharma. That's what yeah, I mean. Yeah. yeah, so Purdue Pharma. Mm -hmm. Essentially, you get a slap on the wrist. Yep. Sorry. Yeah, sorry all these people died and got hooked on our, on our drugs, and we knew this was happening. Our bad. Versus someone who's pushing drugs on the street corner, who's working, who's in an, in an impoverished neighborhood, gets picked up. Let's send this person to prison for decades. Yeah. For doing pretty much the same thing. Yeah. On a, on a much smaller scale. <laughs> and what's the worst part? This family that runs Purdue Pharma mm -hmm. gets to keep most of that money that they've made. That's right. Well, you know, it's okay. You can settle these lawsuits. And they just get to walk away pretty much. I sure as hell hope that weighs on their conscience. Because that, that what, what they have done, it's horrible. But it, it goes to show you how we punish and, and, and the people that, that get punished. And it is the poor and the working poor. And, and that's the, the sad thing in, in, in this country, around the world, mm -hmm. that that's really, it, it's always been the case, though, where, yeah. where the, the poor and the working poor and then even at this point, the, the shrinking middle class Indeed. Are, are, are taking the brunt of, of, of everything that's happening, really. I mean... The, the, that that's uh, I just saw a quote yesterday talking about how it was an economist from Europe saying that billionaires just need, we need to get rid of all billionaires because that's what's hurting all the economies. It's people this they get their money and I think when I think of this, it's those of us now that they have the show on now again. But those of us who are older remember Scrooge McDuck a lot more. Yeah, I think of Scrooge McDuck when I think of a billionaire holding <laughs> on, counting every last penny to do what? Die with most of it. And then leave it to the next generation and the next generation. And just keep it going. Yeah. And you're just, it's like you're gripping that money until your Till hands you are going white because you're holding on to it for so long. So uh, with that, talk about some of the, uh, because you mentioned some really important things, right? This, you're kind of uh, intimating the, uh, the fact that most of our society, right, does not have the expertise or the... Uh, the, the ability, right, to engage the legal system. Mm -hmm. And a part of what the ACLU does, uh, it is very much that it's in, very, it's in response to the condition of the people who are not able to advocate for themselves. Can you talk about some of the, the work that you're doing right now, um, you know, that, that, that would be relevant, people should know about? Well, I think just to, to, to speak first of all to, to the point you make, and that's one of the things that I've seen with lawyers and in law school, the people that I always found to be the most brilliant lawyers were the people who could take a very complex legal issue, mm -hmm. talk to a layman, laywoman, talk to them and put in their terms where they could understand it, simplify it, take it out of those legalese and simplify it. Because that means to me that you truly do understand the law at that point. Because plenty of people can throw out flowery language, and I saw it through law school, where you'd start to read people's writing, you're like, you're just trying to sound like a lawyer. Mm. But these people wouldn't fully understand what they were talking about. So to me, one of the things I'm trying to do in this position, it's taken all the work I've done now for a decade in civil rights law, and I've done from being a litigator for federal impact litigation, which means you're suing states or cities or, or school districts, then working legislatively down in Springfield, and then also you know, working on on trying to draft amendments to law, you know, to, to laws or get bills passed, to teaching law for two years, to then back and organizing and also legislative work to where I'm back now doing more litigation again. Mm -hmm. But to me, you've got people who are trying to push this idea of integrative advocacy. 
which to me is how the law should be. Okay. It's not just someone sitting at a desk saying, well, I got a great legal theory and this is what we should be doing. Well, how about you go to the community and you talk to the people in the community and you find out what are the legal issues that you are facing, which is one of the things I've been trying to do. This is now a year almost I've been in this position with ACLU, is working in the community, getting out into the community, talking to people in the community. What issues are you facing? What do you need support with? As opposed to, I'm going to be sitting behind my desk and I'm going to think up a legal theory and I'm going to think up something that I'll do for this community and never ever engage in anybody in that community and seeing, will this truly change? Will this truly help you? So w one of the things I've been trying to do is that uniting through you know different people, but there's also that, that, that push because of what's happening in the current environment for that need for, lit for litigation. Mm -hmm. There's plenty happening where we have state laws that have been passed, which something like the Trust Act has been passed two years ago, signed by Governor Rauner, and it's something that still is not being followed. You've got plenty of now. What is what is the Trust Act? So the Trust mean? Act essentially it's it's watered down from what it originally was intended to do, is because you had it was at a time with Rauner and you had to have negotiations to try to get it passed. So what it says is that local law enforcement, state police, anybody who's not federal in, in Illinois cannot support or or work with ICE unless there is a judicially signed warrant or if these local law enforcement have probable cause to hold somebody, which means you've got a reason, you've got evidence that someone maybe committed a murder, you can hold them. But the issue that we're seeing, this is what it was specifically getting at, was that immigration, ICE would come in and say, hey, we've got an immigration detainer. Hold this person for 48 extra hours. Well, at that point, you're, you're violating someone's due process rights because you're saying, even if they haven't brought any charges against you, they're going to hold you for two extra days is because immigration is saying they, they want you to hold them for two extra days. Hmm. Well, the Trust Act said you can't do that. You cannot do that. You cannot hold someone if there's just an immigration detainer. You have to release the person. You can't release them to you know call. Uh, you get, you're seeing instances where people are calling ICE, local law enforcement calling ICE, taking people to ICE detention centers really? because ICE doesn't come yeah. to pick the person up. Well, I'll go ahead and do it myself. And you've got a state law telling them they cannot do this, but the issue is there's no enforcement mechanism, meaning there's nothing in the law saying if you violate the Trust Act, this is what will happen. So you've got people acting with impunity. It's like, well, what are you going to do about it? Hmm. No teeth to it. No, no, there, there aren't. And that, that's one of the problems that's happened is that we've had some of these, these laws passed nationally, but they, a lot of them didn't have teeth. And didn't have because again you've got to have these negotiations happen. Yeah, like who? What's the um, what um, law enforcement body is going to be responsible for oversight? Well, that's the problem. I mean, it should be the attorney general, right? Um, it, but when you've had also changes and you've had little elections, it, it's created. You know, and this happens not just with trust. It happens with other types of laws as well, where this happens. Mm -hmm. So. One of the things that, that I've been trying to do is look at what are some of these issues that different various communities are facing locally because we have, our, within ACLU, we've got the Immigrant Rights Project, which is our national, one of our national pr programs, which is out of D.C., well, they have D.C., some people mostly New York and San Francisco. Mm -hmm. They're the ones working on a lot of those issues you see on the border. Right. But we have a lot of issues that face immigrant communities, and this is one of the things I try to get people to understand, too, is immigrant communities does not mean Latino. Right. Immigrants are from all backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Muslims, their issues are not just national security issues. A lot of immigration issues happen within Muslim communities. There's a lot of immigrants within the Muslim community. Right. And a lot of these issues aren't just strictly Spanish-speaking. You go downstate Illinois right now, you see large influxes of French-speaking West Africans, Mayan really? dialects-speaking you know, Guatemalans, and they don't have services because there's no one ready for that. There's, there's Spanish, but still there's not even enough services for people who are Spanish-speaking. But we don't have a full understanding, you know, right now of what's happening, what communities need support. So there, there's a lot of, uh, of work that needs to be done. Allow me to connect something to that uh, point. Mm -hmm. uh, this is why, folks, this is why the census is going to be even that much more important. When we think about um, 
uh, immigrants, we think about refugees, uh, citizens just in general, whoever is here. The census is for everyone. It's not just for, uh, for citizens. It is for everyone that's here. So if you have, uh, like I said, you got an influx of, uh, of, of uh, French-speaking, West Africans, or Mayan uh, dialect, um, who is it, Guatemalans? Mm -hmm. yeah. Whoever those folks are, those people that need social services, whatever wraparound services or supports that they may need, whatever it is, uh, these are things that are going to, the census is going to be a big part of making sure that they get the services that they need. So don't sleep on the census. Be ready for it. Uh, make sure that you're counted. Make sure that if you can um, help someone else, right? You may know somebody who is thinking that they're not going to do it. They're going to stay under the radar, uh, especially folks who may be looking to get, maybe they're refugees or whatever it is, uh, and they're, they feel like this is the setup. No. Uh, fill that census out. Make sure that you do that. And vote. <laughs> yeah, that goes without saying. Um, I had to make that plug about the census. How can people get more information about, uh, what do they go to find out more about ACL, ACLU and the work that you're doing? Well, we do have the ACLU Illinois website. There's also the national ACLU website. So the, that's what people should understand is we do have our national office, and then we do have affiliates, which are in each state. Okay. So sometimes the affiliates are doing different work than national. Uh, so you, sometimes people might see in the media work that National is doing and think that we're doing the same, but we are doing our own some of our own things here. Some of it's tied into the national work. Yeah. Some of it's separate. Okay. Uh, but you can definitely go online and check that out. We do. I know there there is Twitter, there is uh, Instagram, all of that. I don't do a lot of that, but yeah. <laughs> for those who do, yeah. Okay. Well, brother, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Um, I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> it. Um, all right, look, Radio Sound family. Uh, our guest has been Aron Sibra He is a staff attorney with the ACLU. We thank you all for listening. Uh, we'd like to thank our uh, sponsor once again, Recycle Processes. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alamine. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. With that, we leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.